right now today, given where things are at, like, what do you want to learn? One thing that I, that I always, you know, almost always the last question that I ask when I interview people for my podcast is, uh, where is hope? What, what, what gives you hope? What makes you keep going uh, with, you know, because usually I, I interview people who are somehow involved in efforts for peace, uh, reconciliation, better, better Jewish-Arab relations or Israeli-Palestinian relations and so on. And I think that that's, that's a question that I, I keep asking myself, and I, and I think it's a, it's a question worth asking today. Is this, is this doomed to fail? Uh, are, are Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians doomed to end up in a morass of bloodshed and violence uh, and an unending conflict? Or is there some hope for uh, resolution in the future? I think that that's, that's, a, that's a worthy question. And, and it's something that if you'd like, we can, we can try to sort of uh, um, uh, figure out together and, and talk about. Well, it's a, it's a worthy question. And, mm. But the question is, it almost seems on the one hand, like it, it just doesn't fit today because today is just like, whoa, stop the bleeding or stop the carnage. And yet, if you're in that situation, I mean, other than I want to survive, you probably are looking for reasons to hope. But as you said in your essay today, that you sent to your to supporters of Americans for Peace Now, this isn't really necessarily a time to try to identify silver linings. Is that what you said? I said that it's hard to talk to to talk in the language of silver of silver linings. You it's you can't you you can't really say there's a silver lining when so many people are killed and maimed and and such destruction and and such destruction both physically but also in terms of the um, tissue that 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 binds and there is a tissue that binds. Uh, Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel together, and even Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank of Gaza and Israel proper. So to talk about the silver lining today would sounds not only sounds is uh, you know just not not the right way to, to frame it, but to talk about some of the things that can and and should uh, as a as a peace activist I'm saying this uh, be a conclusion of what we've just what we're witnessing now, uh, I think that that's something we can talk about. We can already start talking about some of the lessons that we've learned in the, in the past uh, few days, in the past couple of weeks, and about how we can implement them to try to better uh, relations between the two peoples. I think that that's something we can start doing. What have you learned in the past few days, in the past few weeks, that could in some way fuel something positive moving forward. Okay, so I'll start with, and, and I know some of it will sound and some of it could be uh, superficial and naive, but uh, I'll take that too, because you know I'll take anything, any kind of positivity now uh, when things are so dark. So one thing that we've seen is uh, as violence was raging in, Gaza in Israel, uh, inside Israel between Arabs and Jews, the intercommunal violence that was going on. At the same time, Jews and Arabs in, I think that on a Saturday night, if I remember correctly, um, 
Jews and Arabs throughout Israel went out at a hundred loca locations inside Israel to together demonstrate for peace, reconciliation against violence, uh, to try to uh, instill some sensation of, of normalcy and of coexistence. So again, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to look at it and to look at that in, in the proportion of the, or in the context of the uh, extreme violence that was going on and to say, oh, that is a hopeful thing. But it is somewhat hopeful that you still have that. And I think it's one of the things that I'm learning from that or one of the things that I'm trying to underscore from, from me and from the people who um, support my organization is that while there is a great deal of resentment and hatred and um, uh, acrimony between Jews and Arabs and between Israelis and Palestinians, there still is also a lot that brings them together. Um, we can talk a little bit, if you'd like, about what is happening inside Israel, and it's a trend. It's actually a trend that has been taking place over the past uh, two, three decades or something like that. Uh, it is going on simultaneously as the estrangement and, and tension is growing. There's both tension and, 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 and acrimony that is growing, and at the same time, also bridges that are being built. I know that it sounds, um, it sounds uh, uh, mutually exclusive, or it sounds like those, those things cannot exist together uh, at the same time, but it, it actually is happening and it can coexist. In other words, those two trends that I'm talking about. So give, give, me a, give, me, give me an example that you're intimately familiar with of a bridge that is being built mm -hmm. and the people specifically who are behind that bridge building. I'll give you one one example, and 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 there there are many, uh, but one that that always uh, that is close to my heart and touches my my heart is a network of bilingual schools inside Israel. Uh, they are bilingual, and that's the, how they're defined. They're Jewish and Arab. They are uh, uh, there's uh, they teach them they teach in them in Arabic and Hebrew. Um, the students are Jews and Arabs, citizens of Israel. Uh, there are six such schools, uh, so it's not a big, it's not a large network, but there is such a network, and it's based on equity. It ba it's based on complete equality between uh, the staff, the, the, the students, and maybe most importantly, the parents. Those schools bring together a huge community, a really large community of thousands of families that interact uh, around the school, uh, do things together, learn about each other, obviously learn each other's uh, uh, languages. Um, that is something that has been growing and there is huge demand. I, I, as far as I know, the schools cannot meet the demand for um, uh, students who, who, for families who want to send their kids to to to, learn, to study in those in those schools, those are uh, elementary schools. So far, they haven't yet reached the uh, you know middle school and high school level. Uh, but that's something that is beautiful, that is incredibly um, constructive, and that I know for many families have has really become a game changer in the way they view the relations between Jews and Arabs inside Israel. 
Have you have you been in touch with what? What's the name of the school system or the school? It's called Yad Biyad, hand in hand. Uh, those are there are six schools in this in this uh, network. Uh, one of the schools, you know, one would think that uh, well, one of the schools is inside, really in deep inside, an Arab village in the Galilee in the north. Uh, Jews, you know, come. It's very rare that Jews would come to an uh, Arab village inside Israel. There's a lot of, of you know, segregation uh, uh, in in Israel between Arabs and Jews. Uh, when Jews come to Arab villages, it's usually to either, you know, uh, fix their car or, or eat at a restaurant or something like that. It's not to socialize and definitely not to come and, and, and learn. And here, you know, every day, parents are bringing their students into an Arab village to, to study and to socialize with, uh, with other kids, with Arab kids. That's, a, I, I, I find, a, a very positive thing. And I have to say, you know, having said all of what I said about the, the rays of light, and there are some rays of light, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of darkness in the sense that uh, Israel uh, uh, has become a more polarized community overall in the past few years, and particularly in the past, uh, particularly under Netanyahu's rule, I would say. The, the, the chance uh, uh, death to the Arabs, which were, uh, you wouldn't hear that much on the streets in Israel, uh, have become ubiquitous. You hear them a lot uh, in demonstrations. Um, and, and chants, I have to say, uh, um, uh, by uh, Muslim Arabs who talk about, uh, you know, they, they commemorate a massacre of Jews in uh, the Arabian Peninsula in the days of Muhammad, of Prophet Muhammad, and they chant that, you know, the, the Khaybar Khaybar Ya Yahud. Uh, it was a, a massacre that happened in a place called Khaybar, and they say uh, Muhammad's, Muhammad's uh, uh, army will uh, return. Uh, in other words, we will commit another such massacre. So you hear horrible chants coming from both sides. Um, what is the exception and what is the rule? It's hard to tell. In the past two weeks, the rule, uh, at least in, in terms of, well, again, I don't know if it's a rule. What we've heard, what was more vociferous, were those hateful chants coming from both sides. Um, and again, I would say, you know, while that is happening, there's also a counter trend happening at the same time of uh, building bridges. And so I think I told you uh, the first job I had out of college was as an intern for Egyptian ambassador, former Sadat, uh, aide to Anwar Sadat and, and peace activist. Uh, his name was Tassin Bashir. Sure. At the time I worked for him, he was right around the time he was uh, uh, Egyptian ambassador to Canada. He had recently left the Arab League, very much into conflict resolution, very much into peace between all the peoples of the region. And he always used to use this one phrase, constituencies for peace. And he would say, every side has, every community has constituencies for peace and you need to do what you can to empower them and make them grow. And it sounds like this network of schools that you just alluded to is one of those constituencies for peace. You have had the chance to be on the ground. It was in the 1980s, or I think when we first met yes. and you were the chief correspondent in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip for Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. Uh, 
you were able to, because of your intimate knowledge of the people at that time and the politics and everything, you would, you would be in as good a position as anybody to know how large were the constituencies for peace then? And is there any way to assess what they were then to what they are now in the West Bank and Gaza Strip? You know, in the late 1980s and into the mid 1990s, the constituency for peace, both in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, was obviously much larger than it is today. It was the uh, consensus among pa Palestinian society. I saw it, I know it, I, I, I experienced it. When I covered the West Bank at the time, late 80s, I used to go to the West Bank almost every day and talk to Palestinians. So that's something I can say uh, with a great deal of certainty. There was a conviction at the time that peace is both possible and warranted and uh, that a solution uh, could be found and that Palestinians would ascribe to a solution um, where a Palestinian state would be established in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem side by side with Israel with some kind of a compromise over the other things, including refugees and so on. Yes, so there definitely was a, um, a constituency for peace and I can, I can you know, talk about, uh, anecdotes, things, things that I have seen and experienced that, that make it tangible. Um, that has eroded. Well, to, give, give, give me just, just one anecdote from your memory that we might even be able to put a picture to that sort of typified the constituency for peace that you experienced back then. Sure, in, in uh, 1994, when Israel, uh, Israel's army gradually withdrew from the West Bank and uh, transferred the authority for West Bank towns uh, in what is called Area B, that is the area in which the Palestinian Authority has full control, uh, gradually transferred it to, to the PLO. Um, I covered each and every town uh, that was handed over. Uh, it started in the north and went down south. And uh, one of the last towns to be handed over was the town of Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, I remember seeing, and I remember being in tears when I saw it, uh, young Palestinian women uh, standing and instead of throwing rocks uh, at the soldiers, which Palestinians obviously did during the first intifada, the years that preceded that, they threw flowers. And there was definitely a feeling that uh, Palestinians were gaining a modicum, a sense uh, of independence, uh, and that they were on their way to sovereignty, to statehood. And uh, the reaction was, uh, uh, again, you can say that this was in some kind of a momentary um, euphoria, but still there was a, a sense of, there was a sense of euphoria. Uh, and, and there was, I, I think it, what it symbolized that act of throwing flowers was, yes, we can make peace and our, our hand is extended in peace. There were many, many other such, uh, um, you know, from, there were, there were joint um, patrols that Israeli and Palestinian um, um, armed uh, military or police, you can call them forces, uh, uh, did in, 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 the, in, you know, when Israel transferred those towns to, 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 the, uh, to the Palestinians. Um, there were many such gestures. 
Uh, and and mo more than anything, there were negotiations. There were actual negotiations that went on for years. And we tend to forget, you know, you talked about that piece that I, that I wrote to our constituency. I reminded people there that those negotiations, at least twice that I know of, and I think that probably more, came quite close to a resolution. They were, they came close to actually signing a dotted line. Um, it seems like, it seems far today, and yes, the gaps have, have you know, re-broadened uh, or re-deepened uh, or whatever it would be the correct way of saying it. But uh, having seen such sites, having seen uh, Israelis and Palestinians collaborating uh, in a, in a um, uh, constructive manner toward uh, a peaceful resolution, I do believe that it's still possible, that it's not something that has completely vanished. I just want to read you a 45-second excerpt that I had from a, an interview I did with William Urey a while back. He was the co-author of Getting to Yes, which yes, for a lot right. of people is like the ultimate handbook in negotiation. And he helped, he was part of a very small kitchen cabinet that helped negotiate the end to the Colombian Civil War just recently. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed him on the eve of the signing of that peace agreement. And he told me about an exercise that he and his team engaged in with the brother of the Colombian president, who was one of the main outreach people to the FARC guerrillas. And he said, we were trying to figure out to, to put ourselves in the shoes of the other and just to start imagining we reach an agreement and imagine that the FARC leaders had to describe this agreement, give a talk to all their people as they've just done this past week, well, this is at the time, in which they describe this agreement as a kind of victory for them. Not that it couldn't be a big victory for the government as well, but it's like it had to be something that they could sell to their own troops and explain, look, we've been fighting for 52 years, we're laying down our weapons. They can't say it was all in vain. And so we, the, the kitchen cabinet of negotiating advisors and the key Colombian advisors, we worked backwards from that speech. We even simulated that speech. And I asked the president's brother to give that speech to us as if he was the guerrilla leader, the guerrilla commander. And then we said, okay, so how can we make it easier for them to give that speech? What are the key interests? What are the key needs that they have? And then they went on. Mm -hmm. Knowing how much you know about Palestinian nationalist motivations and how much you know about Israeli nationalist motivations, what speech could an Israeli leader give to his people? And what speech could I either Hamas or Palestine National Authority leader give to his people that would bring them along to what ultimately we'll, we will get to and the Americans for Peace now, which is a just two-state solution? It's a great question. And it's something that I've been, I've been asking myself a lot. Um, so I'll, there, there are two ways. Uh, so I, I want to say two things about it. The first thing is that we have to be very modest and to realize that um, a speech, even if it's going to be a very dramatic and a very effective speech, uh, is only going to go that far because both sides are cynical, suspicious, uh, and extremely disappointed with the other, with the other side. So, um, you know, there's not going to be a game-changing speech, but what kind of, but that brings me to the other thing that I wanted to say, and that is empathy. 
I think that what is needed and what, what, is, what is extremely important uh, for the two sides to try to roll back the incredible uh, accumulated amount of hatred and, and, and um, uh, negativity um, and try to rebuild uh, some kind of, uh, of a uh, uh, trust. Is, is empathy. Empathy is one of the main things, in other words, that, that, that are needed. Um, you know, w- when, when I was covering the West Bank years ago, uh, we used to drive around in, in groups, typically two people, sometimes three or even four uh, journalists together, because there was an element of uh, uh, danger and, and we, we, we wanted to, you know, be, uh, uh, be there for each other. And um, one of the games that we used to play a lot was a kind of a uh, uh, imagine if. And the imagine if was, imagine if in 1967, Israel lost the war and the occupation was not an Israeli occupation of the West Bank, but let's say a Jordanian or a Palestinian occupation of Israel. Uh, it's a, it's it's a, an exercise. Obviously, this this is something that's hard to imagine. But let's just imagine what what would Israelis do? What would Israelis do to try to fight for their independence? To try to fight against the foreign occupation? What would Americans uh, who are friends of Israel, particularly American Jews, uh, would do to help them? Uh, and I think that if you try to play that game, uh, you you get to a place where you empathize much more with what Palestinians uh, feel, think, and and do. So let's go back now to the question about the about the speech. I think that the speech that that uh, packs in it uh, a, a great deal of empathy from the Israeli side. I think that what is most important, and I think what, what would make the most difference, would be a true expression of um, empathy, understanding, and um, internalizing of the traumatic experience that Palestinians suffered in 1948 when Israel was established. I'm not talking necessarily about a um, an expression of regret or or even you know uh, uh, asking for forgiveness. I don't think that that's in the cards, and and I and I don't. Uh, although that that you know that would be obviously would go a much longer way, but I think that even just an expression, an acknowledgement that that Palestinians suffered a terrible, terrible loss. Uh, which uh, you know still casts its shadow over what is happening today. That's something that would be um, that would go a long way. Uh, and then expressing empathy for uh, the state of Palestinians uh, under occupation, the kind of uh, uh, helplessness, powerlessness, uh, humiliation, and so on and so forth. And a true resolution, you know, to to a, a, a an expression of resolve to tackle it and try to bring it to an end. On the Palestinian side, um, I think something similar uh, in terms of an acknowledgement of of Jewish suffering uh, in in their you know uh, traumatic experience, which is the Holocaust. Uh, there was a Knesset member, an Arab Knesset member, who years several years ago gave such a speech. His name is uh, Ahmad Tibi, and the speech was really, truly, truly heartfelt and beautiful. 
uh, acknowledging and talking about uh, uh, his understanding of the Jewish Holocaust. And it made a, a huge impact on Israeli society. Uh, so I would start there and then uh, talk about uh, how that experience casts its shadow uh, until today. Um, over the psyche of Israelis and how they feel and think about their need for security um, and, 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 and so on. Um, and then in a, a, uh, um, a clarification that what Palestinians uh, are seeking is in fact statehood in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem and not an attempt to erase Israel by a mass return of refugee into Israel proper. I think that those things, uh, interestingly, things that mainly have to do with the ex experience of 1948 uh, would, would go a long way to uh, create a new, uh, I don't know, to, to, to allay some of the fears on the other side and, um, and, and, and play an effective role in, in trying to reach future uh, reconciliation. So as, look, as, as we wrap up um, your journey from journalist to then really peace activist, and now uh, you're what, vice president of communications for Americans for Peace Now, correct? Mm -hmm. And so just, just give me a thumbnail, as you've put it in the past, the elevator pitch <laughs> for Peace Now is what? Peace Now is Israel's preeminent peace movement. It was started in 1978 uh, when the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, extended his hand in peace to Israel. And then uh, the, the government of Israel then was, uh, uh, was, was hesitant. And uh, a group of, interestingly, of uh, 300 and something uh, military officers got together and signed a petition to the prime minister then um, uh, uh, Begin, Menachem Begin, urging him to reciprocate and to sign peace with Egypt. That nucleus of 350, if I remember correctly, uh, um, military officers and the IDF, uh, reserve military officers, I should say, uh, was the nucleus that started Israel's peace movement. Um, peace Now for quite some time served as a kind of a pressure group to uh, encourage Israel, Israeli governments to uh, sign peace agreements with its neighboring countries. Uh, but then uh, pretty early on in the 70s particularly became uh, a movement that, that pressured Israeli governments to negotiate with the PLO and to uh, sign a peace agreement with the Palestinians for a two-state solution. Um, in the early 80s, a, an American organization was established to mainly raise funds for uh, Peace Now to help it uh, um, um, grow inside Israel. It was called American Friends of Peace Now. And gradually it grew to become an independent American Jewish organization that uh, uh, supplements, complements what uh, Peace Now does in Israel here in the United States. It's an advocacy organization that um, works mainly vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Washington establishment, but also within the Jewish community in the United States to try to build that constituency for peace that we talked about earlier. The theme I started with, and this is, I'm probably going to title this, uh, Don't Give Up on Us. 
mm-hmm. and the woman who, who said that. Uh, when you think of that, because you're, you're sort of in the same camp, she's with your organization. What does that mean to you? Don't give up on us. What it means to me is, um, and again, it takes us back to something that we uh, tried to explore earlier. There is within both Israeli and Palestinian society, I think when Hagito Fran was saying, don't give up on us, she, she was talking about Israeli peace activists, but on both sides, both in Israel and among Palestinian society, there is a robust camp uh, of people who are committed to peace, uh, to a peace that would accommodate both societies uh, in other words, to uh, either a two-state solution or some kind of a confederation or something where both peoples would enjoy sovereignty and independence. Um, uh, so I think that when she talks about don't give up on us, it means it means that. The other thing that it means is, is you know, that's the us part of it. Us meaning uh, those on both sides who are uh, um, committed to peace. The other thing that it means is um, you are friends in the United States who for all these years have helped us try to achieve peace. Uh, Please stay committed. It's not a lost cause. It can still be done. And uh, your help, um, particularly your help vis-a-vis your um, government is something that could help us a lot. You know, Michael, I want want to say something uh, about this, this, this sentiment, this um, um, the sentiment that there are peace activists and people who are committed to peace on both sides, it's something that today uh, has has eroded, no doubt. But there were moments in history where um, that feeling was very very strong, and one of them, uh, and I'll tell you a little story about it, uh, has to do with. Uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. Rabin was assassinated in uh, 1995. And um, I'm gonna tell it differently. The night Rabin was assassinated in November of 1995, uh, I was sitting uh, at, at my home uh, at, uh, I, I had a kind of a quiet evening because I knew that everyone was focused on that demonstration in Tel Aviv where Rabin spoke. And at some point I get a call from uh, my editor uh, saying Rabin has been shot and he's injured. We need um, reactions from Palestinians. So you know, I pick up the phone and I call uh, my Palestinian sources. And the first one I called was uh, Saeb Arikat, who was the chief Palestinian negotiator uh, and a real friend of mine. I've known him you know, for years and uh, I called him and, and told him what happened. And um, he was shaken and we started talking. And as we were talking, I heard that uh, Rabin's communications uh, advisor came out of the hospital to give a, the famous you know, statement to the press where he uh, told the Israeli public that Rabin um, has passed away. And I found myself uh, simultaneously translating to Saiba Rikat on the phone as uh, Eitan Haber was uh, uh, his voice breaking, uh, telling Israelis that their um, beloved 
uh, admired prime minister uh, was assassinated. And both Sai Barakat and I were crying uh, as we heard that. Uh, we were crying and I remember that what Sai said to me was through the tears, uh, uh, he said something like, everything's going to change, nothing's going to be, to be the same. But one thing uh, that you and I know now is that uh, we, the supporters of peace on both sides, have more in common uh, together than um, what each one of us has, or, or than, than the common denominator of each society uh, um, between those who support peace in each society and those who oppose peace. In other words, there was a constituency for peace that transcended the national divide. Ori, Ori Nir, Americans for Peace Now, uh, and my friend, thank you, uh, thank you for sharing, uh, you know, a real, a real sweeping uh, history, really personal history, and 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 your knowledge of uh, of Israel and. Israel's relations with the Palestinians. Um, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael, and, and thank you for not giving up on us.